0: Listen to what Scripture has to say. The Bible says that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. He himself is the final. Amen. He is the Ancient of Days and the Author of Life. He is the Bread of Life. He is the Chief Cornerstone. He is Christ, our Creator, our Deliverer, our Everlasting Father. He himself is God. He is the Good Shepherd, the Great High Priest, the Holy One, the Hope of Glory, the image of the invisible God, the Great I Am, the Judge of the living and the dead, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Majestic and the Mighty, and no one compares to Him. He is the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. He is the power of God, the resurrection and the life. He is the supreme sacrifice. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the very word of God made flesh. He is all of these things. And yet somehow, as a church in this culture, we have sought and continued to find ways to reduce Jesus down to a minuscule, puny Savior who is in need of our acceptance of him somehow we have managed to take the reality of who God is in Christ and bring it down to a place where He is nothing but a poor Savior who is in need of your acceptance of Him and my acceptance of Him when the reality of it is, and the testimony of Scripture states that we are the ones who are in the most desperate need for Him, not Him for us. Whether you know Him, whether you believe in Him, whether you love Him or whether you hate Him, He is the reality of the breath that you breathe. When you wake up in the morning, the fact that your heart has rhythm and it beats and you take in air and you process air and oxygen is sent to your body and your body functions in a way that allows you to wake up and it allows you to take in breath, it allows you to live your life. You have that because he continues to give you that very grace and privilege of being alive today whether you love him or not. But somehow we have managed to take this unbelievable reality of who God is for us in Jesus and reduce him down to something that is in some kind of desperate need of our acceptance of him and if what we have seen in the last few weeks is is true if what we've talked about in this series so far and the unsearchable riches of the gospel is actually true what we've seen is that we are in such a desperate need of Jesus that without him, we stand before God, justly deserving the wrath of God for the sin that we commit in the face of God, the belittling of God inside of our hearts that gives way to the lives that we live. That without Jesus, we are in desperate need of someone or something to deliver us from the wrath of God that is justly due us. But thanks be to God, he, he made a way. That Jesus has become the sacrifice for our sins in our place, exhausting the wrath of God that is justly due to us on the cross and then taking the sins that we have committed before God, past, present, and future, and blotting the record before God of our sins away, taking those sins and putting them behind his back, delivering those sins as far as the east is from the west, such that we can look and we can stay because of God, not because of anything in myself, but because of God as one in most desperate need of him, you really are forgiven. You, you really are forgiven. If what we have said and what Scripture has said in the past few weeks is true about who Jesus is and the fact that we are in desperate need of him, the reality is you, you, are, you are forgiven. Jesus does not need us. Jesus is not wringing his hands and sweating, wondering whether or not I'm going to deliver him in such a way that you will accept him. He's not looking for your acceptance. He does not need you. He does not need me. We are the ones who are in desperate need of him. And there's no, no story, no aspect of these unsearchable riches of the gospel that we're talking about where this, for me, becomes ever more clear than in talking about the need for redemption. There's no piece of the unsearchable riches of the gospel that speaks to our need of Jesus more clearly to my heart than the message of redemption and the fact that because of who Jesus is and what He has done for us, you really are free. You really you really are free. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to the book of First Peter. It's in the New Testament. If you go to the middle of your Bible and turn right, you'll be heading in the right direction. If you get to revelation, you've gone too far. If you get to Hebrews, start turning page by page. Don't take lumps. It's going to go Hebrews, James, and you're going to hit 1 Peter. It's going to go quick if you try to skim your Bible. But it's over to the right, 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to pray for us, uh, and then we're going to talk about four things. We're going to look at 1 Peter 1, and we're going to talk about what redemption is, what we have been redeemed from, what we have actually been redeemed with, and what we have been redeemed for. What is redemption? What have we been redeemed from? What have we been redeemed with and what have we been redeemed for? Let's pray and then we'll have some fun. Father, thank you again for this unspeakable privilege uh, to come as your people, to submit ourselves to your truth and to your word, that we could be transformed into your likeness by your spirit for your glory and for our joy. And so we ask that you do in a way that only you can do in the next 35, 40 minutes, that you transform our souls, that you awaken an appetite for your glory, that you draw us away from ourselves and draw us towards you. We ask that you take the, the words that I say, the very human, feeble, and sometimes confusing things, and you make them straight arrows that go to the places that you've directed them. So we ask you quiet our hearts, you quiet our mind, you quiet our soul. And speak clearly and loudly and boldly to us by your spirit. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Look at that. I'm, I'm, I'm working on getting them on the PowerPoint for you. Are you happy? I don't really like that because I want you to bring a Bible. But I, I'm, I'm, I'm adjusting. So 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Knowing that you were redeemed, here's our word, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, Not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. What is redemption? What is in Peter's mind When he's writing this letter to the church what is the framework that's operating in peter's heart and in peter's mind when he writes this letter to the church of persecuted believers who has now been scattered throughout the region where did redemption the idea of being redeemed come from for peter if you're actually going to understand the concept of redemption throughout the story of scripture you're going to have to understand the story of the exodus Somewhere in the story of Scripture, and I don't know the exact number, I remembered it, and then I didn't write it down, so I'm going to forget, but over 100 and I think 115 times the Bible uses the word redeemed, redeemer, redeeming, some aspect of this idea of redemption. It's a a mega theme, a mega story of Scripture. In fact, it is the message that God has given the church to proclaim. And contrary to the, the practical functioning of the church right now, at least in this culture, where we seem to be the people who proclaim a moralization of the culture and a moralization of the people around us, morals and the moralizing of ethical behavior is not the message that God gave his church to proclaim. The message that God gave his church to proclaim through their lives and out of their mouths to the nations that all people will be reconciled to God is the message of redemption. It is the grand story of the entire Bible. And if we're going to understand what the writers of Scripture are talking about when they talk about this idea of redemption, we've got to go back to when God spoke about it first in the Old Testament because it's God's idea, it's God's story, and it's His work. And so if we're going to understand it the way that they understood it, we've got to go back to where the framework for them came from. And so if you've got your Bibles, keep your finger in First Peter, and then go left, and go all the way left like you did for First Peter to the book of Exodus. And so if you're going to understand redemption, we're going to have to understand the story of the Exodus. And as you're going back to the book of Exodus, go to Exodus chapter 6, and as you're heading that way, I'll try to bring you up to speed with what happened between Genesis 1 and and where we're going in Exodus 6. You're all pretty familiar with the story of Joseph, I probably can be safe to say. That's probably a safe bet. Most of you have seen the movies, read the stories, or heard somebody talk about it at some point. And so one of God's patriarchs, Joseph, uh, was delivered by his brothers into slavery to a band of marauders who took him to Egypt. And by the providence of God and the working of God in Joseph's life, Joseph rose to second in command to the pharaoh of Egypt, probably Ramses II. Uh, historians say, and he came to be the right-hand man of, of Pharaoh, of the Pharaoh of Egypt, Pharaoh of Ramsey II, and, and, and about the time that Joseph was in charge in Egypt, a famine was coming across the land around the, the nation of Egypt, and, and God, through Joseph, empowered Joseph and gave Joseph the wisdom and then the opportunity to begin to devise a plan to store up grain and to store up resources for the people so that when the famine came in seven years, there would be plenty of food to take care of the people. And so Joseph, God's man in this place, was doing the work that God gave him to do as the second in command to all of Pharaoh in Egypt. And so Joseph was there, and, and in time his family came to him. God brought his family back to him and, and worked an amazing act of reconciliation as the famine began to spread around the land of Egypt. And Joseph's family, his dad, and his brothers, were affected by this, and they came to Egypt seeking food. And there was Joseph, the man with the keys to the food. And an amazing act of reconciliation and forgiveness occurred. And, and Joseph and his his family was, were reconciled. And in fact, because of Pharaoh's great admiration for Joseph and the great respect that the people had for Joseph, they actually allowed Joseph's family to come into Egypt and he gave them a particular place in the land that they could raise their livestock and raise their cattle and grow and take care of themselves and be safe from the famine that was going on around the land of Egypt. So Israel... The people of God at this time, somewhere around 70 people, because of what God did through Joseph, came into Egypt and began to live in the land that God had given them through Joseph to raise their flocks and raise their families. And they began to work and began to grow as a people. As they lived there and prospered, they began to grow. Now the story goes, and you probably are familiar with this, as they began to grow and their numbers began to multiply... Time began to go on, generations began to go on, and Exodus, the book of Exodus starts with the, with the line and with the reality that a pharaoh arose, a king arose in Egypt who didn't remember Joseph. Generations have passed. The people of God have multiplied in the land that God gave them through his man, Joseph, and they've grown to such a degree, and a pharaoh has risen in the land who doesn't remember who Joseph was. He's not a very good scholar of history, and he's not a very good scholar of what God was doing and thankful for what God did in his people through this man, and he's forgotten Joseph But over here is this group of people who some time ago were allowed into his land who have now grown to such a significant number that he began to get scared. He began to worry because what if these people actually collected themselves together and decided to revolt against us? I mean, what if they actually could get their act together and actually challenge us for something? So what Pharaoh began to do is he took the people of God that God had put in that land and prospered in that land and he made them slaves. Pharaoh began to task his people with the job of making bricks and and stones for the building projects of Egypt, and he worked them harder and harder and harder. But here's the thing. The harder he worked them, the more they grew. The harder he worked them, the crueler he was to them, the more he restricted them from the worship of the God who they served, the more they grew. Biologically. the People just began to grow and began to grow and began to (laughs) grow, and you get to... Exodus chapter 6, where I was telling you to go. Exodus 6, six verses 5-8. This is God speaking. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. And now is God's time to intervene. Now is God's time to do something in the life of his people again. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. Here's our key word. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from the, under the burdens of the Egyptians. Notice the pronouns. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession for I am the Lord. God said, I am now going to intervene. Where does redemption come from in the idea of the writers of scripture? Where does redemption come from in the idea and the mind and the heart of Peter when he's writing this letter to the church? It comes from what God had said and what God had promised to his people when God looked at the situation of the people of Israel in the time of Egypt when they were enslaved to the Pharaoh and being burdened and He remembered his promise and his covenant to his people and he said, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm actually gonna intervene. I'm not going to make a deal with Pharaoh. I'm not going to try to cut a deal for half the nation or all the women and all the kids and leave the men. I'm not going to strike a bargain with him. We're not going to come in with coupons or any kind of special deal that we can do and I'll keep animals, give me people. God stepped into the life of his people in the place in Egypt and he overwhelmed Pharaoh with his power and with mighty acts of judgment, God delivered his people out of one way of life to slavery in Egypt to another way of life of freedom and worship of him. God actually came in and acted in power on behalf of his people, redeeming them. Redemption, best understood, is defined by the liberation, freeing, or rescuing of someone from a person, place, or a thing. God came in and redeemed, freed, rescued, liberated his people from one way, of, one way of life, slavery in Egypt, freeing them to another way of life, worship of the one true God. This is redemption. And when you read about redemption throughout the story of Scripture, all the way through the Old Testament, through the prophets and through the Psalms, into the New Testament, in the writings of Paul and the writings of Peter, what they are talking about and what they are referring to and what their context is for what it means to be redeemed is God acting on behalf of his people to free them from bondage to something, a person, a place, or a thing, rescuing them from one way of life and delivering them into an entirely new way of life, ultimately that they may worship him. That's what Peter was talking about. That's what redemption is. Redemption is God acting on our behalf to free us from a futile way of life to another way of life where we can honor him, worship him, love him, and live the life that we were created to live. Freedom is living the life that you were created to live. That's what freedom actually is. It's being free to live the way that you were created to live. So redemption is God acting on our behalf to free us from one way of life, rescue us, liberate us, free us from one way of life to another way of life. What were we actually redeemed from? This is where it gets really fun. This is where it gets really fun. Because what difference does slavery in Egypt have to do with the people that Peter is writing about in his period, and what in the world does slavery in Egypt have to do with people in Richmond, Virginia in 2009? See, slavery is one of those concepts that In our city in particular at least, we just like to kind of pave over with government parking lots and pretend never actually happened and we look at ourselves and say, we're not slaves. Don't mention that word. We're not slaves. That's, That's not what we are. In reality, the story of Scripture is very clear. All of us are actually slaves. All of us, Scripture said, are slaves to sin and ultimately slaves to death, the consequence for our sin. If you don't think so, I've never been able to get around this from the first time I heard it. If you don't think so, some of you know what I'm going to say. Try not to sin and try not to die. If you don't think that without the redemption of God through Christ that we're going to talk about, you are free to not sin and not die, I'm willing to watch. I'm willing to be proven wrong. All of us without the work of God on our behalf liberating us from one way of life to another are slaves to our sin and slaves to death. But Peter gets a little more specific which is more helpful. Peter gets a little more specific about what kind of sin in particular we find ourselves enslaved to and I, I really like this so go back to Peter if you're in Exodus keep your finger I told you to keep it there in Peter go back to Peter what were we actually redeemed from? This is what Peter says we were redeemed from the futile Ways inherited from your forefathers, from our forefathers, from my forefathers. What Peter's actually saying on one level is there's a way of thinking, there's a way of living, irrespective of the realities of God, who God is, what he has done, and ultimately who God is for us in Christ. That is a way of thinking and a way of living, irrespective of those things, not taking those things into regard, not thinking that there's a different way of living, and actually working out the patterns and realities of the worldview that we carry without reference to who God is. There's a way of thinking that's passed down from people to people, irrespective of who God is and what God's done and the realities of redemption through the power of God. There's a way of thinking that's passed down, and we just generation after generation live accordingly. There's a futile way of living. That word futile is the same word translated in Hebrew back in Ecclesiastes, vain, vanity, meaningless, empty, vaporous way of living that is passed down to us through our forefathers from generation to generation, that doesn't take God into account and that simply assumes this is the way things have to be. There is no other way to live. It's just who I am. This is what my dad did. It's just who I am. This is the people I come from. It's just who I am. I didn't get to go to school. It's just who I am. We didn't have any money. It's just who I am. I grew up here. I did this. My dad did this. My mom did this. It's just who I am and that's the way it is. And we just live as if there's no other way to actually live. It's a futile way of living passed down. It's as real as it was to Peter then, the Israelites in the Old Testament, as it is in the suburbs of Richmond now, and the most impoverished inner places in Richmond now in any city throughout America. It's as real and tangible as it was throughout all of history. There are futile and empty ways of living passed down, generation to generation. Work hard, get a job, make money. Make money, get a wife, have kids. Make more money, work harder so that they'll love you and you can get them to care for you and love you and you showed them that you love them because you make money and you provide for their resources. You're respective of the time that you spend with them and the way that you love them. You're supposed to get a job, make money, give them things and they'll know they love you. And when they fail to actually love you, and respond to you the way that you wanted and see that all of your material blessing and possession, the big house you got and the cars you got and the schools you sent them to were actually your way of trying to say I love you because you never actually said it or you never actually did anything with them, you find a new wife. You find a new wife, one who will appreciate the things that you buy, the things that you do and the lifestyle that you afford who doesn't make you say I love you, who doesn't want you to care for her, who wants the things that you think that you're going to provide for her. And you see your kids when you get a chance to see your kids, but they've become a nuisance because they're actually getting older, but you provide for them because you send money. And so you work harder, you make more money, you make a name, you get a wife, you get kids, you get a new wife, one that doesn't really care about you but wants the things that you can provide for her, and it's passed down for generation to generation. And so I wake up and I think, here's what I've got to do. I've got to work hard. I've got to get a job. have got to get an education. I'll go and make money. I'll find somebody that I can provide for. And she doesn't appreciate what I provide for, I'll find someone else. I'll find someone else who appreciates what I provide for. Passed down generation after generation after generation. Here's the crazy thing. That's not the exact story of what was passed down to me. But I am the only person in five generations of my family who's still married to the first wife. Five generations. I'm the only one. Without the work of God and the message of redemption and the power of God of rescuing you from a futile way of living, passed down, irrespective of who he is, I would not be the person that I am today about to celebrate my ninth ninth year with Aaron next week? No way. No way. Relationships were simply a means by which I could manipulate someone to feel a particular way about me, so that when the time came, I had a couple of people lined up just in case. I was a master at manipulating women to feel a particular way about me, to prove to them that I could be exactly what it was that they actually wanted, so that they wanted to be with me. So that when the time came, when I was ready to not be with someone else, I could be with someone else that I had been manipulating and cultivating for a long period of time. Married coming up on my 10th, 9th year? No way. No way. Not gonna happen without the work of God in my life, redeeming me from a futile way of living that was inherited and passed down irrespective of who God was to me. No way. But because of who God is in Jesus, because of the message and the story of redemption, because of God redeeming me from the futile way of living that I watched, that was passed down, that didn't take him into account, I'm an absolutely different person. I live an absolutely redeemed and renewed life. That is not who I am. It is not who I have to be. And Peter was talking about these patterns of living that are passed down that do not take God into account, and we just continue to perpetuate them generation after generation because we don't think there's really any other way to live. And he said, it's vain. It's empty. It's meaningless. But think more specifically. That's still 30,000 feet. Take it down another 10, 15,000 feet. Peter had an audience and this is what I loved about this. Peter had an audience. So what Peter just said when he wrote this letter, and it was being read throughout the churches, he said, knowing that you were redeemed, set free, rescued, liberated from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Peter just called the way that the people in his church were raised, futile, empty, and vain. He had two main audiences that were listening to him. One were Jewish Christians. Jewish Christians. They listened to Peter, they read, they read this, they heard this letter read in their church, and Peter just said, the way that you were raised, the tradition that you were raised, the lifestyle that you were raised in, empty, foolish, vain, what was their lifestyle? What was their tradition? It was the law. A good Jewish hebrew or now christian that peter's writing to would have been raised with this idea that their righteousness and their standing before god was based on how well they kept the law on just how perfectly they obeyed the law when god had sent the law to his people to show them his holiness and their need for a rescuer for a redeemer for a savior the people took the law and turned the law into a way that they could prove how good they were before god They took what God gave them to deliver them, to show them who he was, and took it upon themselves to make it a way they could earn their favor before God. And so generation after generation grew up under the weight of having to perform a certain way to stand righteous and forgiven before God, knowing in their heart and knowing through the function of their life that there was no way they could actually do it. In fact, do I have it up there? Do I have Galatians up there? Galatians 3, listen to this here's the reality under which they lived all who rely on observing the law are under a curse for it's written cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law this was a tradition passed down to the people one group of people listening to peter the church people they grew up under the reality that they were cursed if they could not do everything perfectly that god had appointed for them in the law But they had taken that law, instead of using it to see who God was and their need for him, they had made it a way of righteousness and obedience before God for their sake, for their favor, that they could earn God's forgiveness, knowing they couldn't do it perfectly, and living under a curse. The curse ultimately being death, the separation of the soul from the presence of God for all eternity, being forsaken by God because of sin. Look at verse 13 though but Christ, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Peter was looking at one part of his audience and saying, you received a tradition from your family that said you had to perform a certain way before God to be accepted and be forgiven by God, but God in himself has redeemed you from the curse of that law, from that futile and vain tradition that could never make you right before God. You have now been redeemed. You have now been set free. You no longer have to perform a certain way under the law to earn God's favor and earn God's forgiveness. If this is not the same message that has to be preached to the church in the 21st century, I'm not sure what really is. We have taken the realities of who God is and we have taken it and turned it into this system and what was meant to be spiritual becomes systematic and we create these systems by which we can regulate our life and try to understand our justification and forgiveness before God and when people begin to act in a particular way that's outside of our system or we're faced with a circumstance that doesn't find its way in our system and a decision we have to make that somehow isn't in our system, we throw our hands up because the law, legalism, the rules that we've attached to who God is and what he has done don't fit the decision we have to make and we've used law as a way to actually not live life, not live in the freedom that God has given us because of Christ and we use law to not live life and to order our life in a particular way that we never have to actually trust him for anything. So when someone or something comes in and it doesn't match up with the system that we put in place or the rules or the laws that we put in place, we have no way to actually relate to it. We have no way to actually evaluate what's going on. No way to actually make a decision. Legalism has confined us from actually living life. From actually living in the freedom of the redemption that God has given us. We don't sense that that curse has been released. That's just just one audience. He actually had two audiences when he was writing. So for those who who grew up in the church, those Jewish Christians, he said, you're free. You're free from that tradition. You're free from that sense of having to obey the law perfectly to be forgiven by God. You're free from those things. But there was another group, actually Gentile Christians, group of people who grew up in, in, in areas that, that did not come from a Jewish background, that had all kinds of pagan and, and foreign religions and, and, and any number of different practices that they had adopted. And Peter's writing to them too. They didn't come with that same tradition passed down to their forefathers. They came with a different one. And it was actually not legalism. You can actually call it lawlessness, whereby some people lived by this legal sense of the rules that they had to obey. Others didn't have those things and lived as if they could live any way that they wanted irregardless of who God was. They didn't even know who God was, and they did whatever was right in their own eyes and in their own hearts. And listen to this, Titus 2, 11 through 14. Paul said, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Listen to this. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works? So not only did God free you from this adherence to the law that somehow earned favor before him and forgiveness for him, he actually redeemed you from a lawlessness, a way of life that was irregardless of who he was, irregardless of his holiness. Because you see, when, when I talk about God freeing you from the realities of the, of, the, of the law as a way of earning favor before him, some of you are having a hard time. I mean, some of you, you can, you can see it in your face, I can see it in the corners of your mouth. You begin to think if we talk too much about what God has done and how he has freed us from the constraints of the law as a way to earn favor for him, you celebrate grace, mercy, redemption, but tell them what they can't do. Just, just look, if you talk about that too much, people are gonna run out and get buck wild and do whatever they want because now they feel free to do whatever they want because they're no longer under the constraints of the law anymore. And some of you are trying to get me, by I'm watching your eyes, to put some kind of fence around the realities of what God has redeemed us from. And you know, if it wasn't for the realities of the gospel, I would probably get worried and concerned too. But this is not redemption from legalism to lawlessness it's redemption to be transformed by god because here's the thing he has not only rescued us from the legalistic realities of the law he has set us free from a life of lawlessness and irregard who he is and so god when he redeems us when he rescues us when he liberates us from this he gives us himself and he gives us what scripture says is a new heart And he sends his Holy Spirit, the same one who raised him from the dead into our lives to be our guide, our comforter, our transformer. And so we talk about redemption from the law, from legalism, and from lawlessness towards transformation. And so now we are actually set free from the demands of the law for the sake of the law. Does that make sense? We are actually redeemed from the law from having to obey all the rules of the law in order to earn God's forgiveness and favor and redeem from being able to live any particular way we want, irregardless of who God is, for the sake of his law and for his glory. He has actually given us freedom to now serve him, worship him, and live for him with all the desires of our hearts in a way that brings him glory. Obedience is now motivated not as a way to actually earn something from God, but as a way to display our thankfulness for God and what he has done for us in Jesus. We are actually redeemed from the law for the law, redeemed from lawlessness for the law. Now we can actually obey with a heart that wants to thank God for who he is. Now I don't find myself drunk in a bar on a Thursday night, not because God won't love me, but because I want to live for him. Because I love him and my life is being changed. I don't find myself coveting my neighbor's wife, not because God won't love me if I do, but because he has changed me. And because of what he has done, I want to obey. I want to serve him. I want to love him. I want my life to display his glory. And so we've been redeemed, liberated from the futile ways passed down, the law, the the legalistic tendencies passed down to us from generation to generation, the lawless tendencies passed down to us from generation to generation, that we might love, serve, and live for God and his glory with our whole heart, that we might actually be free to live the life he's created us to live that we wouldn't have to create some sort of system to evaluate all the decisions that we have to make and our circuits fry when something comes into our, our life that doesn't fit our system and we're not able to actually make a decision about what we should do. And that's, that, 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 is most, uh, man, that is the most gut-wrenching, heart-wringing thing for me as a pastor. When you sit down with somebody who, who has a sincere love for God, I mean, no doubt in the love for God, But but they've constructed this system of behavior, this system of living around who they understand God to be and how they're supposed to live in a way that, that honors him. And a decision or a circumstance comes into their life that doesn't fit their system. And they go haywire. They can't actually think. All of a sudden, they don't know what to do with this thing. I didn't create a, a rule for that. I don't know how that fits. I, I don't know where that is supposed to go. These are all the things you're supposed to do. This doesn't fit in there. What, what do I do? I get paralyzed. Paralyzed. Because the law has ceased to be something that directs them towards God and fulfills the desires of their soul and their heart because they're compelled by who he is for them and they want to love and obey, but it's become a way that they justify themselves mostly in the eyes of other Christians. Very rarely when you push hard against some of the problems that we have in the church for particular things that the Bible says we're free or not free to do, our problem with it is more or less what other people in the church will think about us if we actually do or don't, and less about what God will think. And so we create these systems that we can't can't figure out certain things through because it doesn't fit and we become paralyzed. And God has redeemed us, freed us, liberated us, set us free from the empty and vain traditions of the law and of lawlessness that have been passed down to us. He set us free. You are, in fact, free. If you are a Christian, you are, in fact, free. Unbelievably good news. Unbelievably good news. What were we redeemed with? Go back to 1 Peter. What were we redeemed with? If that's redemption and that's what we're redeemed from, what were we actually redeemed with? I'll actually, I've got it in here. Peter said that we were redeemed not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. What Peter is actually saying here is he's actually communicating to the people, to us, to the church for all time, that there is nothing that we can actually purchase our redemption with. There is nothing, nothing that we can do, nothing that we have, nothing that we can sell, nothing that we can buy, nothing that we can give, nothing that we can earn, nothing that we can do to actually merit or purchase redemption. Nothing is more precious than the blood of Christ. Nothing is more precious or more valuable than the blood of Christ. There is nothing that we can do. In fact, this is probably the most offensive thing, the most offensive idea to the message of the gospel is that we can bring something to God to earn redemption and forgiveness from God by something that we can offer to him. There are whole religions in the world that many of them, you have friends and family who are a part of. They're not just crazy religions that you read about in National Geographic. There are many religions that actually believe there will be a day when you will stand before God and there will be scales. There will be literal scales. And it will balance out your good deeds and it will balance out your bad deeds. And knowing that, people live their life trying to do all the good things that they can do, all the things they think that they're actually supposed to do, all the things that they can present to God on that day and say, Look, here's how good I am. Let me let me in. Here's how good I am. Here's why you should love me. Here's how good I am. Open up the gates and, and let me, let me in. And it is the most offensive thing to the message of redemption. It is the most offensive thing to the message of the gospel to think that, thank you, Jesus, for what you have done for liberating and rescuing all of those bad people. But I'm a good person. Here's my scales. Here's what I have done. Now let me in. It is the most offensive thing that can be done or can be said to the message of the gospel and to the person of Jesus to say that I've got something in and of myself that has earned what you died for to bring me. Peter is saying there's nothing that you can do, nothing that you can do to earn this redemption. It was bought for you, the price, the precious blood of Christ. God himself in Jesus, placing aside the realities of eternity, placing aside the realities of, of the preciousness of divinity in heaven with God, came to earth. He took on the form of a servant. This is what he did. He actually lived life on earth as you and I lived, and he did it in such a way that he obeyed, every law of God perfectly. And he didn't do it begrudgingly. He obeyed every law of God perfectly with a pure heart, with all of his heart. That he would honor God and display his glory. That is what we were created to do. That is the curse that we are under because we failed to do it the way that God had intended. And Jesus came and did that for us in our place. He actually lived, we always say, the life that we were created to live. His obedience was important for us because we would not be free from the curse of the law if he had not lived the way that we were supposed to have lived in our place. And here's what he did. After living that life, he actually willingly gave himself up to be crucified on a cross in the most painful and brutal way known throughout history. He did that to pay the price for our sin for our inability to actually obey the law perfectly, for the curse that we were under because we did not obey the law perfectly. He actually gave himself up to that, despising the shame, scorning the shame of what it was going to cost him to do that. And on that cross, he actually became the curse that was due to us for us in our place. That's what he did. He actually became the curse that was due to us and ultimately experiencing, you hear in his cries, the deepest realities of that curse when he cried out, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? The deepest realities of the curse that we are under because of our inability to live the way that God created us to live would be a life in the presence of eternity away from the presence of God, separated, forsaken by God. He experienced all of that in our place. The beauty of it is God recognized what he had done and vindicated his life, his death, his sacrifice three days later by raising him from the dead, sitting him at his right hand where he now rules and reigns over all things, over all things. In that act, Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law that was on us for our inability to obey. He redeemed us, separated us, liberated us from the bondage that we find ourselves in to to sin and to death, conquering those things on the cross through his death and his resurrection. So that now when we put our faith in him, when we come to him not with full hands that say, here's all that I've done, look at me, love me, and accept me, but with empty hands saying, look, I, this is who I am. This is who I am. I need you and what you've done. When we recognize that he doesn't need us to accept him, we're the ones in the most desperate need of him. and we come to him with hands and hearts that are empty and say, I, I need you. I need you. It's at that point that we experience the realities of the redemption that he purchased for us through his blood that nothing else on earth in all of history could have ever produced. And we find ourselves tangibly free. Tangibly free from the life that we were living prior to recognizing who he is and what he has done. Listen, you are actually free not potentially free, actually free. You can actually experience and live a different life. You are not consigned to the life that was handed down to you because you're Italian or Irish or whatever it may be. you not because you didn't go to college or you grew up in a trailer or you grew up in a mansion and nobody loved you. You're not consigned to that life. That is not the reality for you anymore. You are tangibly free. Whatever that thing is that you don't think you can get rid of, you are are free. Whatever that thing is that keeps you at the computer for hours and hours and hours that you don't want to tell your wife or your husband, free. It does not have any power over you any longer. It does not have to be that way anymore. You're actually free. Free. All the things you think will get you freedom. All the things that you think you can go do and buy and when you just get this thing or just live in this place or just get this degree or just get this person or just get these kids or just get this whatever it is and then it'll change. Then it'll change. When this happens, then everything will be different. Then I'll be able to get over this. Then I'll be able to let this thing go. No, the only thing that brings us freedom is Jesus. And we want you, Uh, desperately want you, want you to be redeemed. I want you to be redeemed. I don't want you to spin around like a hamster trying to figure out ways to set yourself free. You can't do it. Only Jesus can. And I want you to be redeemed. You want things to change. I know you do. Jesus changes things. He has set us free, liberated us from an old way of life in bondage to our sin, to futile ways passed down, and set us free to a life of worship for him. That's what redemption is. Why? Why did he do it? Worship. That's why. Look what Peter said. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Look at this. Why? What were you redeemed for? So that your faith and hope are in God. That's what you were redeemed for. What you put your faith and your hope in, you worship. What you put your faith and your hope and your trust in, you worship. God has set you free from that life towards him so that you could worship him. He came in and delivered his people from slavery in Egypt and set them free and took them to the promised land so that they could worship him, so that they could worship him, so that they could live the life that he created them to live, so that he could be their God and they could be his people. He has set you free, redeemed you, that you might put your faith and your hope in him, that you could worship him, that you would be free. To live the life he created you to live. Free from the restrictions of the legalistic tendencies that are passed down. Free from the lawlessness that confines you to slavery, to sin. Free from all those things. Free to worship him. Free to taste real joy, real freedom, real peace, real passion in him, in your life right now. Not in eternity, right now. That's what he freed you for. That you could worship him. That your faith and your hope would be in him. So I'll ask you this if you're a Christian, what's He freed you from? What's He freed you from? If you're not a Christian, what do you need Him to free you from? What does you need Him to redeem you from? Where do you need redemption? And We want, we want you to be redeemed. That's what we want. We don't want you to be changed. We don't want you to be better. We don't want you to be shinier. I want you to be redeemed. Let me pray. Father, I'm all too too prone to convince myself that you need me to accept you. That you're waiting for me to just accept what you did and, and, and somehow or another make you look better than I think you actually look when the reality of it is I am the one that's in desperate need of you. I'm the one in desperate, desperate need of you. Without you redeeming my life, without you redeeming my life, I honestly get sick to think about where I would be. I honestly get sick to think about where I would be. But instead I get to wake up and do this. Instead, I get to wake up and do this. So, God, we pray. We pray that you make your redemption known and real and tangible for everyone in this place. Lord, show us very clearly in our hearts what we need to be redeemed from. Let the fact that you have redeemed us compel us to worship. Lord, let us come to you with empty hands. Lord, let us put everything down, all the things we think earn something from you, that get us somewhere with you. Let us put them down. Let us come to you with empty hands and simply declare, I am empty. I am spiritually empty. I can't do it. I need you. Redeem me. Liberate me. Rescue me. Free me. I want to know freedom. I want to live free. Well, that's my, my prayer for us. And you can do that. You can do that. And we ask that you do that by your power, for your glory. And then ultimately, Lord, our joy, great joy. We ask these things because of what you have done through your son, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.